Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo and wherever you are in the world, it's great to have you with us. On today's episode, I'm joined by two brilliant crime writers who'll be going head to head in a war of the words a little later on in our Book Off. We'll find out which books they'll be championing a little later on. But first, let's meet them. My first guest is a former journalist who's now one of the country's best-selling crime writers with over two million count them, copies of his novels sold. Here to tell us about his new standalone thriller, The Cut, it's Chris Brookmeyer. Hello. Hello, Joel. So lovely to be chatting to you. Shame it's not mm. over a pint, but uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll come to that shortly. Uh, and my second guest is the author of the Slough House novels, which have been shortlisted for eight CWA daggers, winning twice and also shortlisted for Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year four times. I am, of course, talking about Mick Heron. Welcome to Book Off, Mick. Thanks, Joe. Hi there. Hi, Chris. Hello. Now, we're going to talk about what you've been reading recently. Of course, we have the Book Off a little later on when you'll each be pitching as a book you love and you think we should all read but first I want to discuss these brilliant new novels that that you've both just published um Chris let's talk about the cut if we may this is a standalone thriller as I mentioned could you just tell us a little bit about Millicent and Jerry and the story that you've got here yeah, my, my kind of elevator pitch for this one, which is yes. appropriate appropriate term because it's a, film, a, a novel very much about the film world, is it's about a, a suicidal 72-year-old ex-con, uh, Millicent Spark, who um, essentially it's about her rediscovering the joy of life um, as she and her 18-year-old flatmate um, sort of look into the, the mystery behind... The, the murder for which she was jailed for 25 years. Um, so it's it kind of derives from, like many of my best ideas in recent years, derives from a conversation with my wife where she <laughs> uh, told me about uh, a practice in Scandinavia whereby um, older people would offer uh, students free accommodation in you know, very, very good accommodation 
for free or very much reduced um, so that they would spend time with them and so there would be this connection between the generations um, so that the, the older people weren't um, losing touch with, with what it is to be young and, and the interests of, of, of the young and vice versa that the, the younger people wouldn't see old people as some kind of alien species that they'd realise they're much like them, just older and this idea uh, just stuck in my head and of course as a crime writer you think yeah like, uh, someone from in, the, in their 70s and someone who's 18 and they team up to fight crime you know that's your immediate sort of response to it um but i had this idea for a while and then thought how, how would i put that together and um somehow what crept into my head was the the world of film so it, it's about a um this this woman who, who works uh, in the 80s and 90s as a special effects makeup artist on slasher movies um, and she one day wakes up uh, next to the, the body of her, her lover and she ends up jailed for this and she's in jail for a lot longer than the, the normal life sentence because of, of various complications and by the time she gets out she has absolutely lost the will to live pretty much literally because that was something I looked into that people incarcerated for a long time, how they can end up um, losing a, a, a sort of sense of connection with everyday, the everyday world once they get out. Um, and oh, I, I, I wondered if you'd sort of explored that with, yeah, you know, I looked with into, real and people. It was weird things like people who'd been in jail a long time would have difficulty just going through a door because they'd be waiting for someone to unlock it. You know, and, and waiting for essentially permission to do the most basic things. So that was one of the starting points because I wanted to write a essentially a kind of uplifting novel. I wanted to write a novel that is, that's very much about someone rediscovering their joie de vivre, you know, the, the, rediscovering an, an appetite for life. So I thought the way to do that is to show someone who's absolutely lost that appetite for life. Um, and so she ends up um, living with, once she gets out of jail, with two older women as well, and, and they take in this, this student, Jenny, who is a sort of young working class kid from Ayrshire who's got this massive sense of um, imposter syndrome because everyone else at university feels to him very kind of posh and confident and he just, like we all do, feels like he's waiting for the tap on the shoulder saying, what do you think you're doing here? You know, get out. <laughs> um, so it, it's about this kind of connection, this unlikely connection between the two of them. Jerry's a film student and he's someone who grew up raised partly by cinema you know he's, he's he was raised by his grandmother and partly he sees it as raised by his grandmother's video collection so he watched started watching horror movies from a very early age and so he's got this connection with with millicent because she worked in horror cinema during the sort of 80s and 90s heyday of exploitation cinema and that um for the first time i've really been able to draw upon my experience because i worked for screen international in the late 80s and early 90s oh that's right um, yeah and, so most of what we covered as a trade paper was the sort of low-end independent side of the film business. I mean, you talk about independent filmmaking, people think of art house, whereas 95% of it, it was exploitation cinema. Um, and, and I loved all that stuff. You know, the, the, the 80s, um, what were known as the video nasties, those were the movies it I grew up on. It had me in mind of David Cronenberg. Would that be? Yeah, he yeah he he was actually regarded as a, a bit arty, you know. For um, <laughs> uh, obviously, some of the early Cronenberg stuff would have been considered in, in the 
the sort of same area as the video nasties. But this was something else I wanted to write about that I grew up quite inspired by watching when we first got home video, Betamax videos and, and VHS. The first thing we all did as teenagers was watch all the horror films that you wouldn't have been allowed to get in to see. <laughs> um, and this this coincided with this incredible moral panic uh, that just dominated the tabloids for years in the 1980s when they, they coined the term video nasties and this led to this hysteria that, that uh, ultimately created this... The, the director of public prosecutions compiled a list of banned films... Um, it sounds really, really draconian, but it was true. Uh, and they were so many of the films are absolutely, you know, cheesy nonsense, but they were going to corrupt us all. And it did lead to people being sent to jail. You know, uh, and it was on the basis of the most spurious, uh, fraudulent research as well. So I wanted to write about that moral panic and show that Millicent is someone who's ultimately a victim of that moral panic. And I think it's important that the book looks at how... Um, that moral panic kind of infects people and it's important to, to see how stupid it was you know, because the same <laughs> thing will keep coming around again and you have to remember how stupid it was the last time yeah. You got a soft spot for a video nasty Mick? <laughs> um, not so much to be honest I do recognise a lot of what uh, Chris is, is talking about, I remember those times very well I was very struck in, um, in the cut about, uh, by all the, the film references, um, at least partly because I'm, I'm doing something similar in the book I'm writing at the moment. Although in, um, in Chris's book, the, uh, many of these references take the form of um, a game in dialogue between uh, Jerry and Millie where they have to spot the, uh, the lines each other are quoting. So um, what I like about it is you get the answers as well. If you don't recognise the quote yourself, a couple of lines <laughs> later you'll be told what movie it's from, which um, saves, saved me a lot of time on Google, I think. It yeah. also makes you feel a little bit more clever, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yeah. You can pretend, oh yeah, I, I knew that, I knew that. So thanks for that, um, <laughs> <laughs> I was very struck by what you said about uh, wanting to write something that was uplifting, and that was a word, or uplit was a word used on the uh, publicity material I got when um, when I received my copy mm. of the cut. Uh, and it, at first glance, it seems like an odd word to apply to, uh, to to Chris's work. But in fact, I've, I've always found your work uh, to be uplifting because of the, the 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 care and concern you you have towards your characters that's always been the way even when they're accidentally indulging in cannibalism i always find something really uh, <laughs> that, that cheers me up about the books and they're, they're a comfort read for me uh, often I, I go back to your books as a, a source of uh, huge enjoyment and knowing that uh, that it's real classy stuff that i'll be reading <laughs> well I, i'm i'm glad to hear you say that mick because i've, I've always shied away from descriptions of my work as noir. You know, noir is a, a, a term that's just become interchangeable with crime, yes. really, as a yeah. genre, but it, but but there should be a distinction. And I've, I've seldom written something that I would describe as noir because I do like to write something that is ultimately escapist and, and cheering and, and uplifting and, and redemptive, you know. Um, I mean, with, with the odd exception, but mostly I try to write something that's... That, could be described as uplifting because that's kind of I'm I'm a far more optimistic person than people would assume. <laughs> I don't think anybody who writes sentences as long as Chris does could be accused of noir. I think noir tends to be very um, staccato in, in many ways. <laughs> I think I think that was a compliment, Chris. Um, oh, it was. <laughs> well, I, was, I, was it's, I like, it's I like a, a long sentence. I do. It's, a, <laughs> it's appropriate in the, the context of the cut as well because I, I wanted to look at that. that 
um, the way the, the sort of horror cinema grew out of things like uh, Italian gialli cinema, um, and and even before that, it was kind of there was German um, sort of noirish cinema that that led to this, but ultimately led to this exploitation cinema, which um, is a term that's often misunderstood. As if it's exploiting actors or exploiting people, but it's it was often just exploiting the next idea or the next technology. You know, if someone creates a technology that allows you to do blood spatter, there's going to be a whole load of movies uh, exploiting that technology. And it's kind of there's there's something um, strangely innocent about the, the when you read about a lot of the, the exploitation cinema. There was um, people were were just often almost naively just. It, hugely enthused by the stories they wanted to tell or the effects they wanted to have on, on viewers and I, I guess I wanted to look at the, the two sides of it and that there's there was a lot of fun to be had in, in trashy cinema but there is also there is another exploitation side of it because the, the, the book does deal with uh, sexual exploitation as well and the fact that um, young women especially would be prepared uh, to, to do things in order to increase their chances of becoming somebody in the film business so it's it is um and and that's a, a moral conundrum that, that millicent has to kind of own up to as well the fact that she she does acknowledge that she was turning a blind eye to a lot of, of very dodgy things now on the back cover of your new book mick which is titled slough house some up-and-coming author called Christopher Brookmeyer writes, Slough House is an eye-wateringly funny, is as eye-wateringly funny as it is nerve-shreddingly tense, and I couldn't agree more. Um, and it, I suppose this is sort of following on from the fact that you were saying with Chris's book and books, there is this element of uplit or whatever we want to call it. There's, there's a positivity within dark stories, and you've always been keen to put this humour in your Jackson Lamb series. And I, I just wondered, you know, it's, is it always there for you? Are you always just there with the lines? No matter how dark the story is, are you always going to be putting that sort of element of humour in your books? Uh, as long as I'm writing books about these particular characters, I think so, yes, because this is now the tone of the series and mm. I can't really see uh, that I would want to change it um, or that it would be acceptable uh, to change <laughs> it now. Uh, but it came about really back when writing the first novel in the sequence, um, Slow Horses. It started to feel to me like the appropriate tone to adopt for writing about these people. Um, if I were writing, certainly if I were writing the same plots, but with a different different approach, you know, if I just had a lone hero or, or something of that nature, then uh, the tone would be entirely different. But it seemed to me that I was writing about people who were kind of miserable and thwarted and frustrated. And I felt that um, they're having them bickering a lot of the time, which is where much of the humour, as far as I'm concerned, comes from, seemed to be the right way to describe their, their lives. Otherwise, I'd just be writing about a lot of unhappy people um, mm. not coping very well. And that's, yeah. that would be the opposite of uplifting, I feel. <laughs> I think it would, somehow, yes. <laughs> is there in, such a thing this... as downlift? Maybe, maybe I could invent downlift. <laughs> there's, there's something to be said that we all need a wee bit of the essence of Roddy Ho. <laughs> so it just seems to be almost there's a degree of happiness about this complete lack of self-awareness <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a lifestyle guide you know if you could be a bit more roddy you'd probably be quite happy 
Yeah, comedy club happy. Yes, yeah. Being a dickhead means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> but I, I enjoy writing about Roddy because I can adopt, you know, for the time that I'm inside his head, I can quite happily just adopt his um, his approach to the world and see it all as as being there for him, laid out in front of him in, in great splendour. And he is the centre <laughs> of everything. And it's, um, I mean, from an individual point of view, it's quite a positive way, as, as Chris says, of, of looking at things um, in terms of, you know social interaction and so on it's perhaps a bit of a bit of a minus <laughs> yeah. yes that there's a, a great moment in uh in, in slough house where i won't give it away but just that um roddy's tr- very proud of his trade craft en route to is it highgate cemetery <laughs> and there's quite the sting there which i particularly appreciated he's a ninja Yes. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about Slough House? Because uh, Jackson and his crew are feeling a little paranoid in this one, Mick. Tell us about the, the story. Jackson and his crew are feeling paranoid because um, because of events at the end of the previous novel, really. I tried to keep my novel self-contained, but when you're writing a series, uh, you don't want to press a reset button at the beginning of each book because that's just not how life works. So um, at the end of uh, Joe Country, they discovered that um, Slough House itself and all records pertaining to it had been wiped from the service records. They'd been kind of disavowed, if you want me to adopt the Mission Impossible language. And um, part of the book is about them coming to understand why that's happened. And the other half of the book, and these two things come together, of course, um, is the consequences of, a, of an actual legitimate operation from Regent's Park, which is what I call the main body of the, the Secret Service in my world, uh, carrying out a, an act of vengeance, really, in return for murders carried out on British soil by um, the, the Russian Secret Service. Uh, and this more or less triggers a, a situation of undeclared war between the two services. And um, Slough House, because of their uh, new status or lack of status, uh, even lack of status, perhaps I should say, uh, find themselves very much in the um, in the front line of this undeclared war. And mayhem ensues. I think this is what I always have to say. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I was waiting for, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to come back. Um, Chris, you mentioned your wife earlier and how, you know, the, the ideas for books have sparked from conversations with her. I want to talk about one of your write, other writing projects that, that is with her, the Ambrose Parry pseudonym. Before that, Mick, can I just ask? I, 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 can't, I can't tell if the question I'm about to ask is a really obvious one, one that you've never been asked before and you've been waiting, or if it's insulting in some way. So here goes. <laughs> is it you on the front cover of this book? <laughs> Uh, no, no, it, it isn't. I'm not sure who it is. Um, I, there was a um, there was a picture in the in the Times at the weekend of the montage of um, uh, various spies and uh, you know actors playing spies, Connery and uh, and Oldman, people like that. And a, a, a friend asked me why the the article had uh, was talking about Slough House, and uh, the friend expressed disappointment that I wasn't um, included in this photo montage. And I said, oh well, actually the the silhouette you can see of the guy holding a gun that is me. Um, and she believed me. It was, in fact, Daniel Craig, as well as I'm aware. <laughs> but the similarities between us are really quite extreme. I often get stopped in the street and, and you know, asked when the new Bond movie is coming out. <laughs> 
Well, I just, I don't know why it caught it caught my eye because it's a very eye catching cover. But then I thought, oh, I wonder if that's Mick sort of just putting himself into the uh, <laughs> to the cover there with a nice trilby on. Anyway, obviously it's not, and we can all move on. But um, maybe one for the future. <laughs> <laughs> So we were looking at cover designs for the cut and there was just some fantastic designs, some that were maybe just a little too dark or whatever, but there was one that uh, got rejected. It was a nice enough cover design, but it was it had this um, woman on it that um, just something about it, I pointed out that she's on the, the cover of this book and it's called The Cut. It did look like it was going to be about hairdressing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had to be very careful with that. <laughs> There's an untapped readership out there, Chris. <laughs> um, and Chris, uh, another of your writing projects, as I said, it's with your wife, um, the, the Ambrose Parry pseudonym. How how has that been for you, um, working with your wife, but also in sort of such close quarters? Because we all, you know, if we if we have partners and we live with them, we can't sort of escape them at the mm. moment, can we? Well, I think we've been very fortunate in that Marissa and I had several years to get used to being in the same house all the time uh, and we'd started working together I've, I've bumped into other writers or, or rather talked to other writers and occasionally talked to people in the street who work at home um, and and who'd always worked at home and they they weren't finding it so easy that their if their spouse was now also around the house all day you know they were used to <laughs> the house being very much their own domain from you know nine to five um, but I, I'm very much um, privileged that Marissa and I had kind of developed that relationship for a few years and, and we essentially we, we made the best of of the the pandemic situation in that all those festivals that we were talking about, all those things that, that aren't going on anymore, we were um, we were able to write another Ambrose Parry book over the summer because there was, there was nothing to interrupt it um, uh, and and it, the big upside for me about working with Marissa is I, I've I've been very prolific in recent years. I've essentially been delivering a book every nine months um, in order to keep two publishers happy. But the the upside is that it's only every alternate book where I have to come up with an idea. You know, the, the Ambrose Parry <laughs> books. Is Mar- Marissa does all the research to think about what what we should write about, and then she she works on the story. She starts working on the themes. So when by the time I've delivered a novel and I'm sitting down with her to talk about what, the Ambrose Parry book, an awful lot of it's already been decided. So it meant that in, in the spring of last year, uh, when I'd just delivered the cut, I was able to just look at what Marissa had already come up with and then um, we spent a few weeks sort of developing the idea and then we both just got busy writing it. We wrote it in about four months. Um, we've become very... Uh, efficient now we've evolved how we we work together and now not only will marissa go off and write chapters on her own but now um, i I like to write by walking um, which was tricky during the only allowed out once a day phase of um, the the, the lockdown (laughs) last year but fortunately at that point i was quite close to the end of the cut but what i'll do is i go for a walk a lot of pressure on that one walk it did yeah (laughs) they were pretty long walks let me (laughs) confess that much um but i and I would time it, you know, I wouldn't go walking until I'd finished writing something and I knew and you know, needed to plan the next bit. Um, but what I was doing over the summer was I would go for a long walk and sort of dictate ideas or um, dictate material to myself, then transcribe it, and then hand that to Marissa and say, right, you, you turn that into something <laughs> coherent. Um, and that was that was actually quite uh, efficient. 
but it's been it's been great because I think um, the whole world of Ambrose Parry, the nineteenth century medicine, was such an exciting time, especially in Edinburgh, and it's something I just would not be able to comprehend. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to take that on, even though it's interesting, because I wouldn't have the knowledge and the understanding of it uh, from a kind of technical and even from a historical point of view. But Marissa has all of that, and she knows where the drama and the stories are that other people might overlook. So it's 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 essentially I've got this kind of guide into this world that um, makes it so much easier for us to write about it. Yeah, fantastic. I'm a, I'm a absolute fan of the walk and think as well, I have to say, and um, really finding it hard not to be able to go on, well, more than one walk or indeed a, a, a particularly long one. And I do think there's something about... You know, it doesn't happen instantly necessarily either. It doesn't. It's not like when you get home from that walk, you sit down and everything, you know, that's in your brain gets put on the page. But actually, it could be a couple of days later that what's percolated is suddenly available. You know, and I think that's so important. Have you got a bit of countryside where you are, Mick, in, in Oxfordshire? Do indeed, yes. We're quite lucky here. Uh, I'm on the outskirts of the city, and there's plenty of um, greenland and, and river around. Although now it has to be said, right at the moment, it's mostly river. We've got a lot of flood water covering the local meadows. But um, I agree about the the walking thing. I've I've often um, uh, find that that's the best time for for planning. I think of it as a ponder wander. I go for ponder wanders, <laughs> and um, and they're one of the many things I do where I can um, justify by saying, look. I am working. It may look like I'm just kind of wandering around slowly with my hands in my pockets, staring at the ground. But I am, in fact, working when I do this, just as I'm working when I am lying on my sofa with my eyes shut or when I'm having <laughs> yeah. the second snack of the morning while I'm building my way up to brunch. It's all work. <laughs> and am I right in thinking that Jackson Lamb will soon be coming to our screens in glorious Technicolor? Uh, the word soon has that kind of a lasting meaning at the moment, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the, the, <laughs> it is being filmed uh, at the moment, or at least it is, production has certainly started, and I've, I've been on set for a day and, and seen them doing it. I don't know what's happening you know, today as we speak, or for the past couple of weeks even. Um, but yes, it's, um, it's all, all taking place. I can't talk very much about it because it's being made um, by Apple TV, and they um, they like to uh, keep play their cards very close to their chest, and they haven't released the full cast details, for instance. Um, and much of what's going on is is regarded as being sort of top secret. I don't know whether this is what they always do, or whether they think this is particularly appropriate for a, a series about spies. Um, but either way, for a long time, <laughs> all I could do when asked about um, about the show was just repeat the words Gary Oldman over again. That was all I was allowed to say. But nonetheless, they're, they're very good words, and I'm very happy to be able to say them. To have Gary Oldman uh, playing Jackson Lamb is a, is a huge um, privilege, not only because of him being such a wonderful actor, but the very fact that he played George Smiley in, uh, in the Tinker Tailor movie is, is for me, you know, I, I, I hug that knowledge to my chest. It, it gives me a thrill every time I think of it. <laughs> God, I'd be so, I'd be telling anyone and, and everyone if that was the case, you know, uh, be like, oh, Gary, you Gary Oldman, you fan of Gary Oldman? Yeah, 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 he's playing playing the character that I created actually, <laughs> just dropping it in at every point. Absolutely. <laughs> now it's it's been obvious already that um, you have read each other's books, and I think this is a very common thing in the crime writing community because it's such a close knit community. Everyone is very supportive of each other and and everyone seems to genuinely read everyone else's books, I think, because they, they enjoy them. Uh, not not out of a sense of, you're a better, a better read so-and-so's book. I think it's genuine. And 
I just wondered what you'd both been reading recently and if there's anything that you wanted to recommend to us. Chris, have you have you been on a bit of a reading streak? Yeah, um, I think after the intense experience of writing the, the new Ambrose book, I did enjoy being able to read a few things. And, and mostly it was the, the sort of pile of, of things being sent by <laughs> uh, editors or, or, or by um, some of my fellow crime writers and um, one of the, the books that stood out was um, uh, actually a, a science fiction book it's just coming out now by Derek B. Miller um, called who wrote Norwegian by Night and it's uh, called Radio Life and it's like this post-apocalyptic kind of Mad Max type um, world but I think I, I best describe it as it's like if you can imagine Mad Max is written by like Neil Stevenson <laughs> because it's it's is very much about technology and, and, and a relationship with and information, and uh, it's very atmospheric, hugely compelling. And also, I just read uh, Imran Mahmoud's book. Uh, I I know what I saw, which is this brilliantly Hitchcockian um, book about unreliable. It's, it's this rather unreliable narrator who's been homeless for decades, and it was it was absolutely fascinating, truly gripping. And but do you know my in my go to at the moment in the uh, for comfort in the midst of of all the sort of depredations of the pandemic is I'm just binge reading Marion Keys um, <laughs> because her work is so there's just this kind of warmth um, and humanity and comfort to it and it's on the surface it can be about the small things but actually what's comforting is you realise these are the big things these sort of small things in people's relationships they're far more important than a sort of world of guns and explosions. Um, and her books will, will make you laugh and make you cry, uh, but ultimately you, you'll feel like we can make it, it will all be okay by the time you get to the end. <laughs> that's so true. Well, that's a brilliant set of recommendations, of very different ends of the scale there. Thank you, Chris. And what about you, Mick? Have you been finding time to read? Oh, always fun time to read. Yeah, um, I've been doing, as I think many people have over the past year, a lot of a lot of comfort reading in the sense of you know revisiting authors whom I know and love. Uh, just last weekend, I I picked up uh, the Constant Gardener for the first time since it was published. I think it's only the first time I've reread the book, and uh, and was immediately transported not just into the world of that novel but into the Carey's world, which is a world developed by his his prose. I think you you can he's one of those writers whom you can spot immediately from the way they write, uh, who it is who's doing it. Um, and I find that it kind of washes over me. And it, I have to be very careful. I could quite easily find myself writing in the same registers that um, that he uses, if I'm not careful. So I've been doing um, quite a lot of that sort of reading, a lot of um, Val as well, in fact. Uh, Val McDermott, rereading a number of her standalones particularly, and being amazed by the... Um, you know, I knew they were good when I first read them, but um, I don't think I've appreciated quite how good, how good something like uh, *The Place of Execution* is. Extraordinary novel. But a new, a newish book that I read just recently, deeply impressed me, was by Liz Moore called *Long Bright River*. Have either of you guys read that? Oh yes, yeah. Um, she was, was on re- this very podcast last year, actually. Right, right. I was recommending this book about a year ago. It takes me quite a long time to get around to um, following up on recommendations, but I oh, blew me away. It was extraordinary. I noticed that um, Dennis Lehane had words to say on the cover, and it did very much remind me of, of his writing uh, in his more serious um, tone, *Mystic River*, particularly. Well, he's not only writing. Well, sorry, I'll, I'll talk about Liz's book rather than Dennis Lehane's. 
uh, Lismore is not only writing about a, a crime investigation, but he's writing about a whole community and the um, and the depredations it has suffered over the past uh, 20 years of economic decline, a community that's largely um, at the prey of drug dealers and unemployment and the like, and people trying to live, you know, decent lives within that awful context. And um, I was, yes, I was most taken with it. It's um, uh, heartily recommended, Long Bright River. I'm not sure if it's out in paperback yet, but it, uh, it really should be a bestseller, I think. I feel like it, sh- it probably is, because I seem to recall that we recorded uh, an episode of Book Off with Liz uh, back in sort of February last year, I think. So I have a feeling it's probably just coming out in paperback. But it also, it really stuck with me. Like, the actual imagery of that book really stayed with me for a long time and even now talking about it I can sort of bring it back you know it, there was something about her her descriptions in that novel that that you know just really stood out yeah, for me yeah yeah uh, I yes I, I haven't been in a bookshop recently which is why I'm not sure what uh, what format it's available in um but yes uh, it's not her first novel I must go back and explore her previous books but uh, I look forward to more of the same from her fantastic well thank you both for those uh, recommendations I've been scribbling down on the list here Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And now it's time for the book off. This is where each of you is going to have three minutes on the clock to tell us about a book you absolutely love and you think that we should all read. Now, you don't have to use your three minutes if you don't want to. But once you reach that mark, I'm going to be ringing you out with the uh, school bell or I'm going to be uh, honking you out <laughs> with the bicycle horn. So we need to decide who goes first, who goes second. Uh, Chris, you're alphabetically first. So would you like to go first or second? Um, I'm going to chuck it over to Mick. <laughs> and Mick, <laughs> would you like the uh, the bicycle horn or the school bell to, uh, to serenade you out at three minutes? Oh, I think it's going to have to be a, a school bell, I think. yeah. I was about to complain there about this being the last uh, unacknowledged ground of discrimination there, the whole alphabet thing. There's <laughs> <laughs> a great gentleman. Well, I, in, um, he was a great gentleman. But also... Yeah. You got to choose the comedy part. 
you know, you have this technically the more exciting uh, choice to make. Um, <laughs> just before we start, Chris, what book are you putting up for the book off? It's Swing Hammer Swing by Jeff Torrington. Fantastic. And what about you, Mick? I'm putting up Collected Poems by Derek Mann. Wonderful. Wow. Two very different books, but uh, can't wait to hear these. Mick, it's over to you. I'm putting three minutes on the clock, uninterrupted, to tell us about Derek Mann's Collected Poems. Over to you. Okay. I'll spend the first uh, part of that quoting one of the poems, in fact. Um, Back last March, when um, the pandemic was just starting to take a grip, uh, on the RTA News in Ireland, they've closed a a broadcast with Derek Mann reading this poem, which I'll read now. Everything is going to be all right. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window and a high tide reflected on the ceiling? There will be dying, there will be dying, but there is no need to go into that. The lines flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the daybreak and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right. I think you can understand why um, that poem is chosen at that particular moment. But it's a poem that means a lot to me and has done for decades. I, in fact, used that line uh, as the closing line of my first novel, Down Cemetery Road, uh, back in um, uh, 2000, I think it was. Anyway, Marne, um, as a poet, uh, grew up or was educated in in Dublin, and um, he was part of a a trio of poets, the other two being Seamus Heaney and and Michael Longley, who uh, really established Ireland as one of the great poets. centres of poetry at, at that time. He himself went on to live in various places all over the world, uh, particularly in New York for a long time. And it was a very, uh, after a period of not writing at all, became very prolific, so much so that my copy of Collected Poems was superseded a few years later by a new Collected Poems with another two volumes of poetry in it. And um, since then, there were further two collections before he died on the 1st of October last year. I admire Man for, for many, many reasons. Um, he was a poet of great um, formal abilities, uh, as can be seen by much of his translation work. He was a poet who could translate work from the classical or European languages and preserve the rhyme schemes in which they were originally written, which is quite extraordinary. One of the things that um, really impresses me about Marne is the way that he continually engaged with his work throughout his life. So poems that appeared in the Collected and, uh, and later Collecteds uh, were revised from their first appearance, as if he continued to feel that there was some form of the work that he was aiming towards, and he never put them away. He never thought that once they're down on paper, they were finished. Um, in fact, one of my favourite poems of his, when it first appeared, was about six or seven stanzas long, each of the stanzas nine lines long, uh, and the version in the collected poems I've got here is simply nine lines long, and I've never understood quite why he revised it to that extent. Uh, if poetry is meant to do anything, then I think consolation is one of the uh, the main um, things that we look for when we look at verse. Uh, and I'm going to read a part of another poem now, which has been with me for for decades now. This is from a poem called Leaves. Somewhere there is an afterlife of dead leaves, a stadium filled with an infinite rustling and sighing. Somewhere in the heaven of our lost futures, the lives we might have led have found their own fulfilment. I've carried that last stanza around in my head for decades now. It's a form of consolation for me, uh, and uh, that notion that um, the choices we make find their own conclusion somewhere or another is one that I find really, um, really heartening. Oh, and in comes the school bell, cutting you down in your prime there. (laughs) I tell you what, that's... We'll come back and talk about it in a moment, Mick, but I I absolutely loved 
that pitch. I uh, I don't read enough poetry, and actually, every time we talk about collected works, we talk about a poet I don't really know. It makes me remember that I need to sort of up my game. But um, have a rest, have a cup of tea. You've done your three minutes. It's over to Chris now. I'm going to put three minutes back on the clock for you, Chris, uh, and it's over to you to tell us about Swing Hammer Swing. Well, Swing Hammer Swing by Jeff Torrington, the late Jeff Torrington, is. Um, to me, it's the, the great overlooked classic of Scottish 20th century literature. When I say overlooked in that it's, it, it won the Whitbread Prize in 1992, uh, but inexplicably went out of print at one point. Um, it is, to me, is one of the funniest novels I've ever read. The best pitch uh, I, I could offer for it is if you could imagine one of those sprawling Billy Cornley routines where he's telling a story... But imagine that for 400 pages. Um, it's it's a, a, a book about uh, a, a guy called Tam Clay, um, who his wife is in hospital because she's, uh, she's pregnant, but she's got preeclampsia, so uh, she's having to stay in hospital bef- until the baby's born. And this coincides with them knocking down the gorbals uh, where he lives. So it's set in the 1960s. Uh, and I think to some extent it's it's autobiographical about Torrington living there at the time, and when people talk about the Gorbals, it's always they're always thinking about they're sort of synonymous with with Glasgow poverty, um, but it's a depiction of this as this kind of very um, vibrant place full of these um, crazy pubs and and surreal uh, things going on. You know, it's sort of the, the novel that starts with a a guy in a, a deep sea diver's costume emerging from a cinema in the snow. And he's been sent out to to plug Yellow Submarine, which is going to be playing at the cinema that week. But it's a it's just this very inventive novel. The language in it is constantly inventive. It's I I read it again every few years because it's like tapping up the patter supplies. You know, you read this book and it makes you up your game in terms of of the the inventive humour you put into your own language. It's hysterically funny um, again and again. It's, I, I maintain that I was reluctant to read it at first because it had won a major literary prize and I thought that meant it was going to be really miserable um, and I, I think that they gave it the prize because it was around about the time of uh, early 90s there'd been sort of like magic realism from South America in the 80s. I think they thought this was going to be the Glaswegian equivalent and they didn't realise that the surrealism was actually a fairly accurate depiction of a Glasgow Saturday night because um, it's, it's full of these bizarre things like death turning up to a public toilet um, or, or there's just there, there's a, a description of a, a the local GPs where the, the there's a, he's, he's not there, it's a locum but the, a woman describes him as the locust and uh, talks about someone dying of an infarct <laughs> and since he told you it's dangerous to hold them in you know. It, it, but it's just a very inventive very kind of life affirming book but it's also it's about the end of something and the beginning of something else they're knocking down the gorbals just as he's about to become a father so there you go just, there's the end of me pitch <laughs> oh wonderfully done as well well done Chris thank you um, loved both of those Mick I I love Seamus Heaney and I was introduced to him as uh, quite young thanks to me dad but Derek Mann I don't know for my sins well at all and I loved your reading of the poem straight off because I think in 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 talking about poetry it's good to just get a taste of it to sort of get the sense of of what we're talking about here and it just sounded great the 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 line that you used 
Cemetery Road as well. I love that it's sort of you were influenced by that line and and that that sort of appeared in your writing. I love that that's cross pollinated. I, I drop quite a lot of lines of verse uh, in, into the books where I can. Uh, I don't normally own up to it like this. Though. I was interested in what Chris said there about um, being put off by something appearing literary. I think many people steer away from poetry because they worry that it's you know it's not for them uh, for whatever reason. You know it will be you know too highfalutin or whatever um but Mann speaks i think he speaks to the, you know the, the contemporary and he um he talks about real concerns and we see how a poem like everything will be all right just matters very much at the moment uh, and seems eerily eerily prescient really given that it was written i don't know 30 40 years ago yeah and how often do you sort of sit down and read poetry would you say um i always have a collection on the go uh, i have a small pile of books next to uh, my the sofa where I where I lounge uh, and at least one of them is always a collection of verse uh, at the moment it's um, Christopher Reed's The Late Sun so uh, pretty much every day I will pick something up and, and read a poem or two yeah well you've you inspired me to definitely read more I, I find it useful as a, as a discipline as well I mean the one thing that poetry has that prose often doesn't is a acute observance of um, of how many words go on a line you know so you can feel that you know there's a certain syllabic weight to words and you appreciate that more i think in poetry reading poetry than you do reading prose but it's a very useful thing to carry over when you're writing prose to be aware of the rhythm of sentences and the uh, the size of the words that you're using and i loved chris that you said you go back to swing hammer swing every few years and that it's sort of you know the by reading this inventive novel and, and the language in it, that it sort of helps inspire you. I, I don't know it. Um, I, I, I thought the fact that you, the, the sort of comparison to 400 pages of a Billy Connolly rant just makes me want to instantly pick it up. Um, and, you know, being put off because it's a, it won a literary prize, you know, I think that can happen sometimes. And yet, when you when you tell me that there's a scene about death coming up to a public toilet, you know I'm certainly <laughs> I'm instantly sold. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's a kind of constantly energetic and mischievous novel as well because the character of Tam Clay is a he's a bit of a, a rogue and he's not he's kind of running away from responsibility and that's, that's to some extent what the book is about. It's about his world is literally being knocked down, which is kind of what happens when you become a parent, you know. <laughs> and the world of, of, of pubs and, and uh, masculine pursuits is all going away. Um, but it's so it, it does that without being melancholy or sentimental. It's a very unsentimental book, but it's also very philosophical. And I think it's, it's the kind of book that's comforting in that respect because there's, there's something meditative about writing it, but it's about reading it, but it's also just constantly you know hysterically funny <laughs> and i assume it's back in print now yeah yeah um i think largely due to my evangelism over the years um. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's nice to have that power isn't it <laughs> well look i've i loved both of those pictures i think mix made me want to uh, and 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 and, fit, and also awful made me feel a little bit bad about not reading enough poetry it's made me want to go back and pick some books off the shelves and just sort of delve in and if i've made just one person feel bad today joe then i feel that my <laughs> uh, and yes i think you you've won there in that respect um and i don't know swing hammer swing and i i i must i feel like jeff torrington is going to be added to my bookshop.org order this week um but based on those pitches it's a tough one and they're both very different but i'm gonna take home swing hammer swing 
<laughs> just clinched it, Chris. Um, An understandable choice. <laughs> uh, for the humour alone, I think it was the Billy Connolly thing that that sort of uh, <laughs> that sort of swung it. But I also now must check out Derek Mann. So thank you for that, Mick. Um, both brilliant choices. The Cut by Chris Brookmeyer is out now. It's published by Sphere. And Slough House by Mick Heron is also out, published by John Murray. And they are fabulous books. You must get them and put them on your shelves. Well, read them first and then put them on your shelves. Um, Chris, Mick, what an absolute pleasure. Uh, if only it could have been in person. But here's hoping that uh, Harrogate could be... An actual thing this year. Yeah, fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Shoulders to that vaccine. Yes, indeed. Yeah, (laughs) Jab me up, I say. Um, (laughs) It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You too, Joe. Thanks. And lovely to speak to you. And you too. Thanks, Joe. Cheers, Chris. Cheers, man. Bye now. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.